Ой, лузи червона калина Похилилася Чогось наша славна Україна Зажурилася Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Linnea Shively, and normally I host the Charger Culinary Corner for the radio, but today I have an exclusive interview with one of Hillsdale's very own sophomores, Amelia Smick. Here at the college, she's majoring in music as a mezzo-soprano. She's also Ukrainian-American and was born in Detroit after both sets of her grandparents immigrated from Ukraine to America to escape Russian communist persecution as World War II refugees. She recently put on a concert in Christ Chapel to embrace Ukrainian culture through song, poetry, and prayer. She has unique insight and connections to the current Ukrainian crisis, which is what she's here to talk with us about today. Thanks for joining us, Amelia. Hi. <laughs> you are fully Ukrainian and were born in Detroit. So can you tell us a little bit about your family history and how you made it to Michigan here? Yeah, definitely. So, um... My grandparents at, were from Ukraine, and they were from, like, all four corners of Ukraine, um, central Ukraine, Kriverich, um, Zhytomyr, and north-central Ukraine, um, and other areas, like southern Ukraine as well. Um, during World War II, they suffered under Russian communism um, immensely. They uh, dealt with severe persecution, and they were very, very patriotic people. Um, they were Orthodox, and the Soviets did not like that about them. Soviets did not like any religion in that sense, because at the time, Stalin wanted to become God. So he wanted to um, get rid of all religion, all Bibles, all um, priests. And so what happened um, when they fled, there were uh, cleansings going on, basically. And patriots, um, those who were journalists writing in favor of Ukraine, um, they were imprisoned, taken to Siberia, worked to death in labor camps, or simply just executed. Um, my great-grandfather, for instance, um, the only picture we have of him is this tiny, tiny oval picture, and that's as far as our documented family history goes back, um, and it was taken right before he was executed. So my grandparents immigrated to Germany, where they went to the DP camps, and they were, they, um, you know, sought salvation there, and they stayed there for quite a bit, and they ended up immigrating here to America in 1950. While they were in the DP camps, they founded this organization called the AAYUD, um, which stands for American Association of Youth of Ukrainian Descent. So, and in Ukrainian, it's called ODUM, which means the Ukrainian Democratic Youth Organization. In the DP camps, there was this divide of Eastern Ukrainians and Western Ukrainians. Um, Western Ukrainians wanted to go back to Ukraine and fight against the Soviet Union with arms. And the Eastern Ukrainians who had been persecuted, who had seen the brutality of the USSR, who had seen what Russia could do, um, knew that despite the strength of Ukrainians, Russia's arms were greater. And they said that if we go back to Ukraine and we, you know, take up arms and fight the USSR, we will not survive. We will perish. That, that will be Ukraine's end. And they believed strongly in influencing the continuation of Ukrainian culture through song, through literature, through journalism, through education. So I grew up going to summer camps, going to um, events put on by the AAYUD. When I was 14, I was already studying Soviet persecution. Mm -hmm. I already knew the um, horrors that had occurred. And even when I was younger than that, I grew up knowing about the horrors of the Ukrainian genocide um, and knowing about the the gore and the disgusting things that happened because the Soviets hated Ukrainians so very much. Um, and I knew that they hated Ukrainians because Ukrainians defied them. They, uh, they knew that Ukrainians were stronger than them in some sense, in an intellectual sense, as my grandparents would put it, um, because that's the means that they believed that we would defeat the Soviet Union, we would defeat Russian communism, was through intellect. And so um, they did. Soviets heavily, heavily pers persecuted Ukraine. And all throughout time, um, Russia has sought to silence Ukraine. And it continues on today. Ukraine continues on today, not just in Ukraine, all over the entire world. And that's, that's an amazing, amazing thing that my grandparents believed would be done through means other than arms. 
So mm-hmm. here in the United States, they immigrated here um, in the 1950s. And the Ukrainian community, well, so first they immigrated to Pittsburgh. And they stayed there for a bit. That was like where the coal mining towns were. Mm-hmm. But then they ended up moving to Detroit, which is where they had friends. And um, my grandparents on my mother's side moved to Minnesota. She's from mm-hmm. St. Paul. And those are two great Ukrainian communities. So in these communities, Ukrainian patriotism was taught to us since we were very, very, very young. And Mm -hmm. it became instilled in us that our identity and everything about us was rooted from being Ukrainian. And this is true. I do believe a lot of my personality and a lot of my loves of music and writing and reading, all the things that I do love come from my Ukrainian identity. And our communities are extremely, extremely strong here. Um, Our grandparents did a great job of maintaining the culture, passing the language on to us, um, and continuing religion here in the United States, which um, isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do Mm -hmm. from what I understand. But... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And music seems to be a huge part of your life, uh, especially within your Ukrainian culture as well. So you did recently just put on a concert at Christ Chapel once again to embrace Ukrainian culture through song, poetry and prayer. So where did you get this inspiration from the event and how did you put that together? Oh, that was a that was a big task and I didn't quite realize it was. Um, I knew I had to do something. There's this feeling of helplessness that Ukrainians have while we're over here. And I've seen it in my friends in the community. They're always trying to find ways they can help and it's never good enough. My own sister went over to Romania and came back and she wants to go right back there because because being here and helping is just not enough when we see our own people dying and being, being murdered and slaughtered and raped. Um, so I knew I had to do something. And I looked back at the way I was raised to love Ukrainian culture, which a big part of it was through music. I grew up going to concerts. Um, there are Ukrainian ensembles here in America. Um, there's the Ukrainian instrument, the bandura, that I grew up playing at, at um, Ukrainian camps here in America. There's a huge Ukrainian music community. And if you're Ukrainian, it's most likely that you know how to play an instrument and sing and you know, know a one million folk songs. Um, mm-hmm. So I was raised singing Ukrainian folk songs. And then once I started working at these um, summer camps for the organization that my grandparents founded, I began teaching Ukrainian folk songs to um, the next generation of Ukrainians. And Mm -hmm. it really is like what flourished my love of being Ukrainian, because if you listen to our music, it is very, very patriotic in not really the sense of the word that many would think. It's patriotic in the sense that it is... um, it talks about a lot of really beautiful things about the Ukrainian culture. And one of the biggest things is our tie to nature and um, our tie to this earth. And even like our Ukrainian Orthodox traditions are um, still in touch with, you know, what the pagans originally had their, their rituals in, uh, regarding nature. Um, and our songs continue this in us and it continues um, the idea of strength in the Ukrainian community. A lot of our songs reflect, um, especially like the songs of the Cossacks, the songs of the, um, you know, militant groups in the early 1900s. They, there's one, for instance, um, called in in the bush. There's a red kalina. Kalina is a, a ver- I forget what the berry is called. It's a I don't know what it is in English, but it's a little red berry, mm-hmm. um, and it's a uh, very symbolic of the Ukrainian culture. And it's a song about our fight with our enemies and our perseverance against being persecuted for our land, for our love of our country, and for our freedom. And this song originated back with the Cossacks in the 16th century. And then it was redeveloped in the early 1900s. And then it continued to this day. And it's it's sung, even today, it's being sung in uh, regards to what's happening right now. Songs have continuously united us through these things, through all the persecution we've dealt with. And I, when growing up, all these songs I heard led me to understand where I came from, led me to understand my lineage, and led me to understand the strength of my lineage. So the reason I came up with this concert um, was because I felt helpless. I knew I had to do something, and music is really what I know best to do. 
And I also look to what my parents did back in the you know 1980s, mm-hmm. 1990s, during the fall of the Soviet Union. I look back to what my grandparents did during World War II, during that persecution, and they put on functions, just mm-hmm. as we are doing now. Mm-hmm. They put on shows and um, inspired through music. Other Ukrainian communities are putting on um, concerts as well. It just became a thing. You see, like, oh, another Ukrainian concert to benefit, you know, um, Ukraine through these times in Pittsburgh and Chicago mm-hmm. and in Detroit. Countless Ukrainians are doing this because this is how we know that we have defeated the Soviet Union in the past, how we know we can defeat um the aggression and evil that Russia is right now. Mm-hmm. So, and I can expand on the concert itself too, if you would like. Yeah, absolutely. I know that you sent out an email asking orchestra students, band students, just music students here at the college if they would be interested. And you were mentioning earlier that you were just really overwhelmed by the positive response that you had received. Could you tell us a little bit about how just the technical aspects of that concert came together? Oh, yes, I would love to. (laughs) It was um, many sleepless nights is the best way I'll put it. Um, So I decided to influence the community here through songs that influenced me. Um, And I selected songs that were close to my heart. For instance, um, one of them is a song regarding, uh, it, it talks about cranes flying away, and it's sung often at funerals, um, and it is to honor the dead. And um, I grew up knowing this song, and I uh, ended up composing or arranging a vocal quartet with flute and trumpet for that. Um, I arranged just about every piece. I think there was one piece that I did not arrange. Um, I got I was able to have two of my own compositions performed. One mm-hmm. of them is called Reflections on Holodomor, the Ukrainian Genocide. And in it, I took a variation of a folk song. Um, and the words to it are, um, and the world went silent as you know we were dying. And mm-hmm. it talks about the idea of silence as the world watches Ukrainians suffer. And I wrote this last year. Um, without any context of what's happening today. And Mm -hmm. it is just as relevant today as it was last year, as it was in 1932, as it was um, all throughout Ukrainian history. Mm -hmm. The other song that I wrote um, was called Chornobrivtsi, which is the marigolds. And I took the melody of the Ukrainian folk song, which is about marigolds, um, and I set it to the text of Where Have All the Flowers Gone by Pete Seeger, which is um, symbolic of the cyclical nature of suffering and war. And I said it to my own text as well. Um, And I wrote that to honor Ukrainian soldiers today. And so Mm -hmm. that was a vocal duet performed with uh, piano and sleigh bells, percussion. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just realized what I had to do, and I did it. I stayed up all night long um, composing, sitting in Howard for endless hours. I worked with the amazing, amazing volunteers to schedule rehearsals amidst all their you know, midterms in their classes. Um, I led rehearsals. There was one point in which I started a rehearsal at 4 p.m. It went until 8 p.m. And then I worked oh, from wow. 8 p.m. until like 9 a.m. the next morning and then went to classes the next day. <laughs> um, composing is not a quick task to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, running rehearsals is not a necessarily easy thing. It is a very mm-hmm. rewarding thing, though. And the dedication of the volunteers i will be eternally grateful for them Mm -hmm. um they really supported me through this they knew that it was not an easy task for me they knew that my heart was heavy and they did everything they could to help me through this and to learn the ukrainian language and i will continue to tell people that in just in six days in under a week these amazing musicians mastered the Ukrainian language and the songs that I gave them. My Mm -hmm. father came up to me after the concert and said, it sounds like they're native Ukrainians, the way that they were singing those songs. And he, I watched my parents during that concert and they had tears in their eyes because in the email that I sent out, I wrote to people that my love of music comes from the feeling I felt when I would sing and see old Ukrainian people tear up. And Mm -hmm. when I was young, I didn't have quite the developed voice, so I can't say it was about the beauty of my six-year-old little (laughs) shrill voice, but I can say it's because they were watching a little Ukrainian girl in America sing songs that were banned in Ukraine, that were forbidden to be sung in Ukraine when they lived there Mm -hmm. because they were too Ukrainian. 
And just as I saw that in the elderly in the Ukrainian community when I was younger, I saw that in my parents when I was performing that concert. And um, I was extremely, extremely moved by the support and the um, the uh, kindness from everybody who came to attend and everybody mm -hmm. who participated. Mm -hmm. And thanks for listening to Radio Free Hillsdale on 101.7 FM. I'm Linnea Shively, and I'm here with Amelia Smick, a sophomore at Hillsdale College who is giving us an inside look at the Ukrainian crisis through some family connections that she still has with Ukraine. And switching gears from the concert to talk a little bit more about the Ukrainian crisis itself, Russian President Putin claims that Ukraine is committing a genocide against a minority Russian population in Ukraine. But reports of mass graves and evidence of other atrocities keep coming out and keep getting revealed almost daily now after Russia pulled out of northern Ukraine. So what else isn't being consistently reported about this crisis? Well, first I'd like to address that what he's saying is obviously um it's obviously almost comically incorrect it's not true and and there's tons of evidence regarding it but but the even more comical thing the thing that i find um sad disappointing and yet comical is that people believe him and that is the power of propaganda. Um, that's something we need to very much so pay attention to is that, yes, he, he is making these claims that just seem out of line. Sure, yeah, the Ukrainians are committing this genocide against the minority Russian population, as you said. Um, there's not a single truth in that statement. Um, but people still believe it. I've seen people say that, that these people in the streets are actors being paid to pretend that they're dead. Um, that there's, you know, Ukrainians posting videos saying that it's not, you know, it's not what they're saying it is. It's, it's, uh, Russia's not persecuting us. Well, who do you think those quote unquote Ukrainians are? Um, propaganda is not obvious. It is not, um, something that's necessarily easily identifiable to those being influenced by it. And those being influenced by it very rarely know that they are. That's how propaganda works. It's sinister. So regarding what's not being reported. Um, right now, the uh, internet is being flooded with graphic images, with um, content of what happens daily. We are watching the genocide happen in real time, and that very much so troubles me. But what troubles me more is that we are watching it happen in real time, but we are having the same reaction that the world had to the Ukrainian genocide in 1932 to 33, and they weren't watching in real time when they heard rumors of it. When they were told, oh, there's this this famine in Ukraine, and some said, oh, man-made famine by Stalin, and Stalin responded and said, no, it's it's their grain, you know, while he was raising the grain quotas. Um, the world stayed silent through that, and the world isn't necessarily staying silent, it's staying passive, and um, it has to do with the um, influence on especially the West, the weakening of mankind, as, as I would put it. And um, I would also attribute it to the concept nowadays of um, not being able to take authority. Um, and I'll go into this just a little bit. I think that today our society is very much so based on crediting other authors. Very few are willing to be their own author and to take their own stance. Um, we rely on copious amount of footnotes to, to um, give us quote-unquote authority. We are writing books about books about books about books. Um, we are living in a society today that is not generating its own ideas, that's not, um, we think that we're progressing. But how can we progress if we're just recycling what others have said? Mm -hmm. And so in regards to that, people are not coming up with their own beliefs on this. People are not actually looking into themselves to understand what's happening into history to understand what's happening. They're looking at what um, social media is putting out there, what news outlets are putting out there. And there's so much out there on all of this. So it's very troubling to me um, to see people base their beliefs just solely off of what they scroll through on Instagram. They need to look within themselves. They need to look um, to history um, and what has shown us, because if history has shown us anything, it's that it repeats itself. And if history has shown anything in regards to Ukrainians, it's that it very much so repeats itself. But it also repeats itself in the sense that Ukrainians persevere. Um, 
so regarding what's not being reported um well i would say as um these towns are being occupied by russians um there's not much in regards coming out immediately um and not necessarily immediately but even shortly after um things are coming out much later than they should um there's inconsistencies regarding uh, death tolls regarding um you know areas of aggression and it begs the question of what what death toll does everybody want <laughs> what number do they want to believe it's happening um i think that in this you know troubling time of of um, copious amounts of media and being expressed um, it's important to get away from you know the social media and what's posted on there and I will say there are things that are true being posted on there um, there are people there that are um, putting out images of what's happening and writing responses but at the same time we can understand this happening but we need to look in the past i think to really truly like feel within ourselves that this is happening i've been told by a few of my friends that are not ukrainian and they apologized to me before saying this um and i told them don't don't apologize um but they said it doesn't seem real it just doesn't seem like it's actually happening because how can i like wake up and make my morning coffee while there's um, mothers being raped in front of their children and being slaughtered? How can I, you know, go to Kroger to get my groceries while there's um, towns just being destroyed and um, men's hands being tied behind their backs and being shot in the back of the head? Well, there are these horrible, murderous, uh, psychopathic, disgusting things happening to people. How can I be here doing this and that be over there? And um, it's, I think, the derealization of this situation, the desensitization of, um, you know, the West and of mankind to these graphic things is really sourced in the idea that um, we're seeing too much, way too much of, of too many versions of the truth. And people want to understand really what's happening. They want to, they want to, they hear all these things all these um you know uh horrible events coming out from ukraine about what's happening they hear it and hear it and hear it, and then they get sick of it they get tired of it and then they hear other versions of the truth and they say well hey like maybe maybe that's true because i've heard like all of this and they're saying all of this well they wouldn't say that if there's in some validity there's too much being put out and um we need to look to the fundamental things and then we need to look within ourselves to understand what's happening. So. Yes, absolutely. And before the show and we were talking too, you said that you have some direct connections right now in Ukraine with uh, friends helping in, helping in the International Legion and helping refugees on the border. So without getting too specific, I want to focus on your friend in the International Legion first. What has his experience been like and what is he seeing over in Ukraine right now? Um... It's been horrible. It's it was uh, very very heartbreaking. So he first uh, he's my childhood best friend. Um, I met him in kindergarten. Um, he's not Ukrainian. Uh, he's American, Italian American. But he saw what was happening, and he told me he said, "I don't know what I'm doing here when there's innocent you know women and children being killed when there's innocent people." just being murdered. He's like, what? He said, what am I doing here? Like, I don't know how I can live with myself if this all comes to an end and, you know, hopefully Ukraine will persevere. But he, he said, I still don't know how I can live with myself if I didn't do anything. Um, so he made the decision to join the International Legion. And it took me by surprise. We had a couple hours <laughs> long of a phone call um, discussing it, and I did not push him to join as his friends would <laughs> like to say. You know, they, they were in shock when they found out that he was going over there, and they blamed it on me, which I understood, and I talked with them through it. Um, and I sat on the floor with them and held their hands as they cried um, about him leaving as soon as he had left the room. Um, but he just made this decision and he when we were younger he would always come up with these lofty you know ideas and um he would always do them like when we were younger uh 16 maybe 
he wanted a pig. <laughs> and the next day he went and got a huge pig <laughs> and he raised it. He named it prosciutto. And so he, <laughs> he is the kind of person that has these huge, odd ideas that just seem so out of, you know, out of field. And then he does them. And mm-hmm. the thing I would like to point out about his idea to join the International Legion was that it seems odd and it seems you know, out of field to us. But this has happened all throughout time. Men have gone over to help others, to save others from from being killed, um, to serve, um, to protect democracy. And that is what he did. And mm-hmm. next thing you know, he was on a flight over there. He was calling me all the time. Um, and then he was there, and it was radio silence. And for weeks, I was on edge nervous Mm -hmm. not knowing what had happened to him he basically had a unit that he was a part of and he told me that there were like various um you know nationalities in that unit there was i guess another italian guy that he enjoyed Mm -hmm. talking with and what they would do is they would they would walk he said we walked so much and um he said he's never walked that much in his life because <laughs> i had told him when he called me after this it all ended i said uh, he i said go go on a walk to clear your head and he said i will not go on a walk again um and they would walk through villages and um he told me he said there's just so much dead just everywhere in the streets that they would walk through and they would basically be looking for russian occupation and um, the straw that broke the camel's back, um, and I guess that's a bad way to put it because uh, it didn't break his back. It was just a sign to him that he needed to return home for now. Mm-hmm. Um, there was shelling that was happening just like a couple hundred yards away from him, and it uh, blew out his eardrum, so he lost hearing in his right ear, and mm-hmm. he had... Uh, scars wounds all over his face he sent me a picture and I wept when I saw that picture it was horrible to see him that way because he was both injured and so so skinny from being there he said they ate canned meat during their time there Mm. canned ham and he told me he's like it it wasn't really that bad because I was I was pretty disgusted by that but um, I think one of the hardest conversations I've ever had in my life is when he um made it out of Ukraine and on his way out of Ukraine he was in Lviv and on that day Lviv was being shelled um just out of chance he ended up there and then it started being shelled and I you know I I prayed so hard for him to make it to Poland and then he calls me um he texts me that he made it out of Poland he was in a hotel or actually he was in a hostel um and he called me from the floor of a pub in Poland and he had been in that pub for um, 11 hours. He was on the floor mm. of a bathroom, I should say. He had been in that pub for 11 hours, and he called me, um, uh, not of sound mind. He was drunk. Um, and he had been drinking all day, absinthe. Um, mm. And he had a concussion. And I, I, I told him, I said, you better be careful. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be very careful of you know, drinking. But I also told him that, he needs to be forgiving of himself and there's no understanding of how to cope with this and that him being on the floor of a of a bathroom of a pub in Poland um having been there all day was honestly maybe one of the only reasonable ways to cope with the things he had seen and i think the saddest part of that conversation was when he said when he cried to me and said i am sorry um I'm sorry for leaving. And I, I, my heart broke. I did not know what to um, say back. I told him that he has nothing to be sorry for. Um, I told him to go. I asked him if he could find a place to buy a journal and a pen. And he said yes. I also told him to drink lots of water. And he said yes <laughs> to that too. And I said, when you know you get out of that pub, I want you to go get a journal, get a pen. And everything that's in your head, I just want you to to write it all down. And then you don't have to think about it anymore. Then it's not in you anymore, and you don't have to remember it. And he said to me, um, he said, okay. He said, that's kind of of like throwing up. It feels really bad at first, but then you Mm -hmm. feel better after. And I said, I said, yes, exactly. 
So then he calls me a few days later. He's in Paris. He had missed his flight um, connecting from Paris to Detroit. And so he was in a hotel at the airport in Paris, and he was on the phone with me, and he told me that he had been writing in that journal um, since that day. And he said that his journal entries throughout um, his writings, he said, he, he said, I think I'm getting a little bit better. And I said, how so? And he said, well, the writing in my journal um, in the beginning is just so messy and all over the place and scribbly. And then he said, now it's it's pretty neat. And he said, I've, I've even started drawing. And he sent me a picture mm-hmm. of one of his drawings. And it was a bird that was um, in the shape of a Ukrainian trident. Um, like it was flying downwards and it looked mm-hmm. like the uh, symbol of Ukraine, the Ukrainian trident, the trezub. And he sent it to me. Um, and I realized that that was um, maybe one of the best things he could do was just to to write it down so he didn't have to think about it because there's no way to even um, understand how to live after you've seen such things. And Mm -hmm. so most recently, um, the phone calls I've had with him, uh, he was at work and I guess his coworkers, um, they were very insensitive and asked him, oh, how many dead people did you see? Did Mm -hmm. you get shot at? Did you kill anyone? And he uh, called me immediately after, and, and he said, I do not know how they can ask these questions. He said, no one will ever understand. And I told him to write write it down, write mm-hmm. down how he felt. So right now he um, is learning how to go on, and I think the way that he's found to go on after this is to um, continue his efforts for Ukraine. He told me on his way back, he said, he said, the only thing motivating me to go back to work is just knowing that I'm going to go back, make money, and donate it to Ukraine. And his friend has a food truck, and he he told me that he wants to tell his friend to, to make these, like, Ukrainian uh, pastries to sell mm-hmm. at uh, the local fair in Detroit mm-hmm. um, to raise money for Ukraine. It's the only thing that's really, like, keeping him going at this point. But he is um, a hero in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even... You, you were talking, too, about how historically men have gone back to fight. And along with your friend, I want to highlight, too, one of the one of the employees at Bon Appetit at Hillsdale. He is Ukrainian, and he was on his way to getting a green card here in America. But when he learned about the crisis, he also went back to fight for Ukraine. So we're seeing so many stories of heroism coming out from Ukraine here. And I'm here on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 with Amelia Smick. I'm Linnea Shively, and she's giving us an inside look at the Ukraine crisis through some connections that she has over there. And she has another family connection on the border of the Ukrainian and Romanian border helping refugees. And I think right now, social media is almost giving us an idealized version sometimes of the flight out of Ukraine. We've been seeing just different TikToks that are almost vlogging people's escapes out of Ukraine, but that's really not the reality of the situation. So can you tell us what your family member saw over on the border of Ukraine? Yeah, so um, it was kind of the same thing as my friend that had gone over to serve in the International Legion. Um, One day, um, it was my sister Tanya, one day she was, you know, here in America working on efforts here. And then the next day I get a text from my parents that say, hey, Tanya's going to Romania. She's flying over there today. (laughs) And I gave her a call, which she didn't answer. So I left her a voicemail that said, hi, Tanya, heard you're going to Romania. Do you mind uh, giving me a call back? (laughs) And she did. um, And I, I said to her, you know, uh, there was a frustration at first, I think, with my parents and me with her going over there because um, I told her, I said, our grandparents risked their lives and everything coming over here to America to to protect us from just this. What are you doing going over there? And um, I understand that statement was made out of uh, concern because I know why she went over there. And I frankly wish I could do the same. In fact, she's, she's given me opportunities to join her. Um, but... I've decided to focus my efforts um, over here in the meantime. But she flew out to Romania, and um, she was there until, I think, like maybe two, three weeks ago. So she was there for uh, quite a a while. Um, She flew out right at the beginning of the war, and she's actually planning on going back. But regarding uh, what you said about 
the uh, romanticizing of what's happening through social media. You know, they, they put on um, songs and, and uh, make TikToks about their journey out of Ukraine. It is not that. And I'll um, talk about that in a few points of what my sister saw. So I would have phone calls with my sister. Um, it would be, you know, two in the morning for me and, you know, day the day for her. But I would stay up um, and I would, and she, she would just have to talk. She would just have to just ramble about everything she had seen because throughout her time working there, she had to uh, remain stable. She had to help people. And so she had to not think about all of this in a human context. She had to think about it in the, um, with the purpose of, of saving people, of helping them. Um, and so a few things that she saw that are very, um, that contrast to what TikTok is putting out there, what Instagram, what other, you know, social media outlets are putting out there, um, which I would suggest um, a skeptical view of those people really being Ukrainians. But she told me that there would be cars that came over and they had um, Gita or Gita in Russian written on it. Um, they would write it in Russian and Gita means kids um, in Russian mm -hmm. and Ukrainian. And they would write this, families would write this on their car um, in hopes that Russian soldiers would not shoot at their car as they um, drove that journey to escape out of Ukraine because mm -hmm. they put up a sign that said they have kids. Mm -hmm. This was... Um, the cars that made it to Romania did survive, but this was not always the case. Um, there, it, it, Russian soldiers were ruthless. They, they don't care. <laughs> they don't care if there are kids in the car. In fact, they may want to shoot more, given that there are kids in the car. Mm. And the um, Ukrainian ethnicity right at the start. Um, another thing she saw... Uh, was, well, there was a man that came over and he had a severe stutter that he developed just during these events of the war because um, due to PTSD. And he was a father, he had a family, and he would speak to her and continue apologizing for his stutter. And he was embarrassed of it. He um, almost avoided talking because of it. But take that into, into context. This man was so traumatized by what happened that he developed a stutter. It mm. affected his, his psyche on, on, on a physical level. Um, she helped a woman, um, an old woman, come over uh, who had to receive an immediate surgery. And this is actually, she called me when she was in the hospital. Um, she, was, she was in tears when she called me. So this elderly woman um, had to receive an immediate surgery. Um, and so she drove with her to the hospital and my sister had to translate, um, you know, the medical documents and whatnot. Um, my sister does not speak Romanian. She, she tried her best. Uh, she speaks Ukrainian and English. And so she was helping uh, Romanians who would like speak English, translating that into Ukrainian and vice versa. She was helping where she could. But um, she's very smart and she was able to pick up what she could of the language. And she called me and said, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I, um, you know, not necessarily I'm not qualified, but um, she almost felt like she she was, she didn't belong. That's not what she was supposed to be doing. Like she felt like she, she wasn't good enough to help is the way that I would put it, which is, which is not true. Um, anyone is good enough to help and, and any attempt at anything she can do to help ease the transition of refugees um, into their, new lives um is is just um from her heart and so she um struggled with this case in particular because you know it was medical and these words are very very unusual in different languages they're not you know used in common everyday um speech and so she um she also saw a lot of children and families um and they would um give them like new stuffed animals and whatnot to, you know, mm -hmm. kind of give them a fresh start. Um, another thing she told me was that a lot of the Ukrainian women would just be, be kind of, kind of mean to her and like, and like come up to her and say like, Tanya, like, like what now? You know, and they, they would be a little bit aggressive. And then um, right at the beginning. And then once they had like settled into these, these um, displaced persons camps and she sent me photos of them, it was just cots, you know, cots lined up 
um, and families with the one suitcase that they were able to, you know, pack when they fled. Um, she said that immediately upon arrival, they were in angst. They were angry at Russia, at the world, and at her because they had nobody to express that to. They were confused. They wanted to protect their families. They were upset for what was happening to their families. And so they would take it out on her. And, um, you know, it brought her down at the beginning. But then once they were settled in, once they had a path of where they were going next, um, they would come up and just and hug her and kiss her and thank her for everything she's done for them because they, they knew all along that, you know, there's only so much that can be done and that the evil in this is Russia. Um, but the things she saw, she um, still has not told me everything about. Um, she had a very difficult time documenting all of this. I think there's um, a misconception that when people go over there, they get to bring back these hero stories. And, and anybody that really does go over there and, you know, even to other countries like, um, you know, Germany, Poland, and, and they uh, have, you know, things to boast about and brag. I don't know. I would say be skeptical about that because my sister, my friend, they cannot even bring themselves to um, understand what happened because what happened was not human. The things they saw were not um, of humanity. And that breaks a person. Um, and it also strengthens, strengthens a person. But it really does break them. And uh, she is learning to cope with that. Um, my friend is learning to cope with it. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's PTSD. It's, it's war, war PTSD. It's um, PTSD from a crisis that no human, somebody with humanity, no human can really understand. And so she's working on being able to um, tell, you know, people and tell the world um, of the things that she deems worth telling and of importance to tell, but she really is um, very skeptical about exploiting the refugees and the pain and suffering that they are going through right now. And so she wants to go back. She um, feels helpless here again, and she, I believe, is going to be going back to Romania in the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just like some of your friends were mentioning earlier on the show, you said how it just feels almost surreal we can it's really easy to get caught in our Hillsdale bubble caught in our American bubble over here so what can Hillsdale students what can listeners here on the radio what can we really do to help the situation where can we get accurate information about it how how do we make this how do, how do we stay more connected to this situation in Ukraine um so you stay more connected by staying more human more human than um, what the evils um, of Russia and all those who fall in pursuit, um, more human than what they want us to be. Because when you feel the suffering of, of every living thing, you know, that's, that's humanity, that's consciousness. And so first I would say, um, I would urge introspection and I would urge taking authorship of your own thoughts. Um, and finding it in within yourself to fight the desensitization because we are all victim to it, me included. Um, we are all being influenced by things beyond our control is one way to put it. But I think, I think we're all aware of a lot of the manipulation that's happening um, with the different world powers. But at the same time, <laughs> We're all still, um, you know, on social media. We're all still reading these things and, and, you know, falling victim to the lack of original thought and the desensitization that um, I think is infecting us over here. So that would be step one, is to understand how to feel something in regards to what's happening right now and, and feel that it's real. Um, and part of that would be, again, looking to history. And I stress history so very much because that is what I grew up um, learning was Ukrainian history. That was, that was the, my father was um, a history major. Um, 
at U of M. And so he very much so stressed the importance of, of knowing history because then you don't need to hear what the news tells you to understand what's happening because it's happened before. And um, you don't need to hear necessarily the uh, opinions of journalists in the news telling you what happened, their, their views of it. Then you can look at what is happening and you can create your own views because I think right now um, we need the footnotes. We need to cite our sources so very much to the point where we're citing our sources on what we deem original thought. The other step I would say would be um, to continue researching but being very um, wary of the sources. The Cave Independent is the source that I like to go to. Um, accounts of people that are over there, um, you know, Ukrainians, even um, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, um, he has I would say Zelensky has said things that I so wish leaders in the West would have the courage to say, mm -hmm. um, to have the original thought and authorship to say. But looking at these things, um, I would also say um, one of the big things, you know, if, if people desire to do something to help, it's contacting, um, you know, government officials it's it's writing those letters and i think i mentioned this last time but my own mother when she was 12 years old uh wrote a letter to uh president carter asking him to free the ukrainians from communism um and she wrote uh in parentheses please write back thanks <laughs> at the end of it um but but you know writing to our officials to our public officials our thoughts about what's happening our original thoughts about what's happening because there's a disconnect between us and the government um most people in america and the government and the things that they do and if we really want to um make a change it is through you know shuffling the paperwork but make the paperwork about your own beliefs your own thoughts um Another thing I would urge is that if people, you know, still have conflicting views or, or um, feel like, you know, it's just hard to believe, to, to have those conversations, to have those hard conversations, to reach out to, um, you know, Ukrainians even. I know that any Ukrainian would be so very happy to sit down and have a discussion with this because I am so very happy that I'm sitting down and having a discussion with this. And um, we have been Ukrainians. We've been silenced and forgotten. And um, we, they've, the evils of Russia have tried to eradicate, to eliminate our ethnicity as ethnic cleansing. And so even just having a conversation with somebody Ukrainian who understands their identity, who understands the history, and learning from them the truth about this and um, what their families have went through, through, you know, the first-hand account. So having those hard conversations um, with Ukrainians and, and being open about um, your concerns and, and your skepticism with Ukrainians, because if we understand anything, we understand Russian propaganda. And, you know, if one truly understands propaganda, um, one understands that those who fall victim to it generally do not know. Um, and so... Ukrainians do, we don't like it necessarily, but we do understand why there is skepticism, why there's, you know, romanticization and all these, all these um, twisted narratives about what's going on, because that is what has been done throughout, you know, our history, um, you know, since shortly after Muscovy came to power. Um, the narrative has been twisted. The truth has been twisted. Um, what is truth is no longer truth, and what is not truth is uh, also no longer truth, and sometimes truth. Truth is a very important thing to, um, it's a very uh, easy thing to manipulate and to weaponize, and that is what Russia is great at doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, if anything, Ukrainians do understand this, but we also understand that we have to fight it through journalism, through music, 
through teaching, through reminding of, of history, of what historically has happened, and knowing that in historical teachings, the narrative has also been twisted. And, mm -hmm. and identifying um, where Russia has twisted the narrative throughout history and expecting that they would twist this narrative as well because history repeats itself. Mm -hmm. And history has shown that, um, you know, the, uh, the Soviet Union and Russia has, has decided uh, new versions of what happened to Ukrainians. So just as the Ukrainian genocide in 32 to 33 was um, a, bad, a bad wheat crop, a bad harvest, um, this genocide today is actually a genocide against, you know, Russians, the poor Russians, isn't it? So I would urge being very skeptical about what you hear um, in both regards, but understanding that if you want to know the truth, you need to look to the past and you need to look within. And what the past has shown um, is what's happening today. Mm -hmm. And um, beyond that, of course, you know, any... Um, of course, like monetary, like um, donations are, of course, appreciated. There's like Razum, uh, which is a Ukrainian charity right now. Um, so people are people are, you know, doing what they can here. And there are lots of organizations to uh, donate to. And I guess the last thing would be to be very wary of what you buy, what you purchase and where its money goes, because indirectly, uh, funding the genocide is a very uh, sad thing and it's a thing I think that we are desensitized to. Mm -hmm. So uh, knowing what powers in the world have decided to continue to fund Russia actually, despite what they say, do not listen to what they say, listen and pay attention to what they do. Um, and also what, what big, um, you know, companies here in the United States, which ones are continuing to contribute to Russia despite what's happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much today, Amelia, for taking the time out of your day to talk with us about the Ukrainian crisis. You have a true passion for getting the information out, and it was really great to talk to you and hear from you and all of your experiences. And if you want to stay in touch with Amelia and see what she's up to, she has a couple of articles that will be coming out in the Ukrainian Weekly soon, so keep your eyes peeled for those. Otherwise, we want to give you a big thank you for all. Otherwise, we want to give you all a big thank you for listening into our conversation today. I'm Linnea Shively on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7. This has been Amelia Smick, and have a great rest of your day.